Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. This special show is also being brought to you by Arete Complete. The Arete Complete towel is the official towel of Peloton, and the tennis towels are ultra-absorbent, beautifully designed works of art, and they're now rolling out a limited-edition French Open towel that is the same design as their French Open t-shirt. Features an incredible laser print of the old center court, Court Central, where Borg and Noah and Lendl won that tournament. It is an awesome design. It's an awesome towel. See them at aretecomplete.com. That's A-R-E-T-E-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E.com. And use the code SHAP20 for 20% off of your order. Today's guest was born and raised in Houston, Texas, and began playing at 10 years old. She was the number one junior in the world. She rose to four in the world in pro tennis, beating everyone from Everett to Navratilova to Graf to Celis. She won 14 tournaments. She reached the final of Wimbledon in 1990, becoming the first black woman since Althea Gibson to do so. And she battled bulimia throughout her career. We discussed it all. The great Zena Garrison is today's guest. Are you in Houston? Yes. You are? Yes. Born, raised? Born and raised in Houston. I um, I left for probably like 13 years. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. area for a while. Came back just in t- um, time for Hurricane Harvey. <laughs> Yeah, and you got beat up in Harvey. We're going to talk about that. For our listeners, the, the woman you hear has not gotten enough credit for her prowess, you know, on and off the court. She's been through the fire. Uh, former world number four. She won 14 singles tournaments and 20 doubles tournaments. She put the beat down on every great player that you have heard of the first African-American to have gotten to the final of a grand slam to of a major until I guess the Williams sisters did it um, since Althea Gibson. That's Zena Garrison, the great Zena Garrison. How are you? I'm great. It's nice to finally talk to you. (laughs) Did I get that all right? Did I have all that right? Actually, you're the first one that actually has gotten that I was number four. Actually, I was number four twice, so I thank you for that one. <laughs> you were four twice? Yes. <laughs> hey, tell you what, that's no joke. You get to four in the world. That's a, an incredible thing. Now, listen, as you know, we do a five-set format. I want to get right into this. The first set is the off-the-court report. Listen, how have you been? The world shut down about you know 60 weeks ago. And uh, we're coming back a little bit. I know you're in Houston. You guys are back all the way or what? Well, yeah, actually, Texas kind of opened up, um, you know, but Houston has been, we've been cautious about doing things and people are still wearing their masks and, you know, getting vaccinated and um, just trying to be safe around here. Now, are you vaccinated? I actually am. Okay. Which one did you get? I actually got Pfizer. um, Okay. I lucked out. Um, they were trying to get rid of some, and I live around the corner, and I was able to get get it a little bit early. You did, and and did you feel bad after you got it? 
You know, I actually was think I was very luckily the first um, shot absolutely felt nothing. Um, the second shot, I actually was good for two days. The third day, I for about five hours, I was really tired. Other than that, nothing. So you felt a little lousy for uh, you know the third day, and then you were good to go. Good to go. Yeah. And now, and did you ever catch it? Did you ever get the COVID or no? No, I no. um I okay. kind of hybrid it. <laughs> I'm an introvert anyway, so <laughs> you kept it tight, huh? I kept it real tight. But you know what, Craig? It's interesting. Just being an introvert in the beginning of the pandemic, it was really tough on me. Um, because I probably in like maybe the third or fourth week, uh, all of my, you know, I was bulimic for many years on the tour. All of that just started to come back and all my insecurities and things are out of feeling out of control, just literally came back for about a week. And, you know, I really thank a lot of my Facebook friends and family because I actually put it out there that I was having a rough time and actually having the opportunity to hear other people's stories really helped me through it. You know, your um, trials and tribulations have been well documented because of you, because you've been, you put it out there. What triggered, you know, that, that bubbling up of those, you know, issues? What triggered for me was the feeling that, um, absolutely having no control of anything that was going on. You were told to stay in the house. You didn't really know, you know, you watch as much information as you can, just totally feeling like the world was out of control. And I had no control of what was going to happen next. And you're just waiting. And um, that just really sent me for a loop. But you're okay. Oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, so it's just interesting when you've gone through something for so many years and it hadn't come up in years. And then all of a sudden to not really know that, you know, triggers have been really set off by something that you actually absolutely had no control of. So it was just interesting. But like I said, I was really fortunate to have a lot of Facebook friends and family. Well, first of all, I was willing to put it out there that, you know, I was feeling a little weird and, I, you know, was anybody else feeling like this? And to my knowledge, people started telling me their stories and how they were feeling. And I mean, that's one of the most immense and intense off the court reports set ones we've ever had, but I'm glad to hear that <laughs> you're feeling all right. Let's move into the second set. This is the on the court report. I understand you keep an eye on pro tennis. Yeah, actually, I do. Um, you know, I go in way I go in waves, but I absolutely love the summer, um, especially when all the grand slams are coming up, and just kind of you know watching, you know, these last this last year, and then this year it has been interesting because. You know, just tournaments are starting to kind of get back in, but you're still having a couple different, you know, people are being able to watch. So it's been kind of interesting to just see how the players have been dealing with this as well as the events, how they've been doing to try to make things keep going. Has there been a player or a players that have caught your eye that you love to watch you can't take your eyes off of? Um, right now, well, actually, she's on right now. I think Sabalenko, but I think what I'm liking about her is that she has put out put out there in the atmosphere that she wants to be the player. Uh, and you know, anytime I, you know, being a former tennis player and also coaching, when you have a player that puts that kind of pressure on themselves, 
it's I'm always interested in watch to see what they're doing to possibly make it happen. What about X's and O's? Do you like that big power game she possesses? Or what is it? You just like the attitude mostly. I'm actually a real big attitude person and with confidence as well. Um, you know, the game from my era to now, you know, changed so much. But I do think that, you know, people are starting, the younger ones are at least starting to go back to coming to the net every once in a while. They're starting to play, you know, it'll never, I don't think it will ever be like it was before. I mean, it's just so much more power going on, but they're learning to, you know, use all parts of the court. And I think that's great. Do you keep your eyes on the black players uh, in particular? Do you, are you always pushing for that? Do you like to, do you keep your eye on Coco Goff and Sloan and Madison Keys? Yeah, I think that's just a natural thing for me because I have been, um, you know, back in my day, Arthur Ashe and, um, you know, even before then, Althea Gibson, Leslie Allen, Kim Sands, you know, it was just kind of like a natural thing to pay attention to the next Black player. So I've always done that. Yes. Now, do you have a relationship with any of them? I, uh, I know Madison and I know Sloan. I do not know Coco, um, so but you know Sloan and 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 those guys, yeah, I I know them. <laughs> do you can you tell me anything interesting about them moving into the, you know, these are kind of the money move months of the of the of the of the tennis season. Well, I think um, Madison right now, she's you know she's been unfortunately has kind of had a little bit of a of a hiccup. Um, just, I think she had COVID recently and, you know, Sloan just recently parted with her, um, coach Kamal Murray, which is a very good friend of mine. Um, and so I think she did that just cause she's trying to get some new fire. She's won a couple of matches, so maybe it's working, but well, I'll go back to Madison. I think Madison just has to get out of her head and just basically understand, you know, I think sometimes players think like they just have to have so much rhythm going into. She's a big hitter, and it's just all about the confidence within with, within herself. And Sloan, the same. I think Sloan is one of the best athletes out there, um, as well as just believing that you know she can be at be back on top when she wants to be back on top. But it, it's going to take her trying. Um, she got to try for every ball. She's a counter puncher. You know, she can't play that. She can play the big hitting game, but that's not her game. She's probably one of the best counter punchers out there. She just has to be who you are. I got to tell you, sometimes I'm, I'm stunned at how bad she can play because she is so talented. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sometimes I'm just looking at her. I'm like, God, you know, the, but I guess it just goes to show you the sports is so mental, huh? No, it's all, man. It's, 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 especially tennis, you know, some people like to say 80%. I go as far as 90%. But with Sloan, you know, I still, and I wonder this, sometimes she used to hold the record for losing the most six O's. And I'm like, how could she lose so many six O's like that? Right. How could she lose so many? Now, have you ever asked her or no? Um, I did ask her and she laughed. She just kind of looked at me like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's funny. Now, what do you think of Coco Goff? You know, um, she's she came up like a rocket with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, when she beat Venus at Wimbledon, it seemed like they were crowning her the next heir to the throne. But it's not, it's not always that simple, is it? 
No, it's not that simple. And actually, sometimes, you know, and I totally understand this because I was the number one junior in the world coming. And then um, also the added pressure of being, you know, an African-American in an all-white sport, that's another added pressure that people don't even totally understand unless you're Black. Um, So with Coco, you know, one of the things that happened last year was a huge thing to me. And I still, to this day, don't know. I you know, you can't go backwards, but I thought Coco should have played team tennis. <laughs> and the reason why I said that is because she needed matches. She still was kind of on a roll. People were wanting to know what was going on, but you get an opportunity to sit down with, you know, a coach. You get have an opportunity to play with an older player, a younger player, and a seasoned player. And I thought someone with her age would have really grasped from that. Okay, so fast forward. You know, I think she, to me right now, I don't know if she's growing the way that I think that she should grow. And I think she, I love the way she plays. I love her heart. I love the fact that she tries to play all parts of the court. But when you're young like that, you kind of take the focus off of winning and you got to put the focus on improving. You have to take the focus off of winning and just try to get better because the results are going to come if you get better. Exactly. Because, you know, as you know, people are, you know, now the book is out on her. You know, you go to her forehand, you know, she gets a little nervous, her serve gets tight you know, all those things. So then as a player, those things start to play in your head. And then as as a coach, you got to try to figure out how do I get that out of the head of my player? But then you got all these other coaches watching every little thing that she does. So, you know, she's still young. Um, I just hope that she can she can make that turn where you just say, you know what, even if I drop you know, 10, 15 spots or 20 spots or whatever, I'm going to improve from the long run. I'm going to work on some things to improve for the long run. Naomi Osaka. Absolutely love her. (laughs) And the reason why I love her is because I love the fact that she goes by her own beat. She doesn't go by other people's beat. Um, Of course, what she did last year um, uh, Black Lives Matter at the U.S. Open, I think that just put her in a whole nother, you know, I look at her like a transformation with, and put her on the same thing of uh, Billie Jean King or Arthur Ashe when, you know, uh, when he went for Apartha, you know, I think she's just, she made a change for herself, but it also was a change for life. When you see 80-something-year-old women um, or men crying because of the leadership role that she took when she won the U.S. Open. I mean, that's major. Yeah, and she she walked it like she talked it, right? She put her feet down on the street. And that's not easy to do. (laughs) And and that's not easy to do. And and, and by the way, uh, Coco Goff, we've talked about it before because it happened a while ago now, but people seem to forget. But she made a very poignant speech in her hometown uh, early on when that George Floyd murder yes. happened. Yeah, and she actually took a stance. And and I and what I loved about that is that the wisdom that she was allowing herself to learn from her grandmother and from her parents and to take it on from their experiences and their knowledge, and she wanted to know more. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, she's she's primed to be 
our next major champion. It's just that the toughest part is going to be is all the endorsements and all the other things that she has to do and all the pressure is going to allow her to also be able to improve the way she needs to improve to be where she needs to be. That's right. She needs to get better. Venus and Serena are look like they're really about to take their last, like, you know, buzz around the sun. What would you like to say about them? Well, for one thing, I would have never imagined when I had the opportunity when Rosie Casals came up to me in a, a little exhibition that was a Say No to Drugs, Nancy Reagan, um, <laughs> and they were seven and eight years old. And to see these two young, black, talented, players Serena can barely see over the court I mean over the net to see them and what they've done to transform not transform not just tennis but what they've done for women in general has been absolutely amazing um so of course I am behind them and hopefully you know I just think that you know it's just two major champions um hopefully they can go out on top you know do you have an opinion of how they've conducted themselves and how they've been throughout their careers? I mean, they've been on the tour for 20 years. <laughs> that, that's an opinion within itself. 20 years is a long time. You know, the ups and downs, I think that they've, they've carried themselves very well. I know a lot of people, you know, go back and forth, um, but people don't understand sometimes the pressure, like I said earlier about not just being the pressure of, of a woman in a, in a sport, but being a black woman, sometimes in the sport, sometimes people have no idea. Sometimes the pressures that we have gone through that you don't even know about. So for them to, to knock down the barriers that they have broken is absolutely first class. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. I'm just going to go, I'm going to start it right here. Zena, where does your tennis begin? My tennis actually began in Houston, Texas. I had a brother that played baseball for Texas Southern University, one of the HBCU uh, black colleges in here in Houston. And he was a, a pitcher and he had a girlfriend. What's his um, name? What's his name? Rodney Garrison. Rodney Garrison. Yeah. He's now postman. I've always been Rodney Garrison's little sister. Even when I was at Wimbledon, people would see me and he was the postman and they said, Oh, you're Rodney Garrison's little sister. I'm like, no, I was four. I'm four in the world. I'm Zena. But <laughs> um, Rodney was the one that took me to McGregor Park. And that's where I met John Wilkerson. And Rodney had a girlfriend that played in high school and uh, she played tennis. And that was kind of the first kind of inkling that I kind of knew of tennis. Um, Leslie Allen actually uh, came down and did some things with Texas Southern University. I had an opportunity to meet her. But the biggest part of it probably was when I had the opportunity to go to college, um, Arthur Ashe came down and I was already the number one junior in the world. My mom was like, no, you're going to college. Hold on a second. I want to back up a second. So mm -hmm. you're, you're 10 years old. You start taking lessons I, I was 10, actually 10 and a half. I started taking lessons from John Wilkerson. By the way, I, that's four years too late. <laughs> right? I mean, generally speaking, people start playing when they're six years old that become pro players. You don't hear a lot about, you started late. Yeah, I, I was definitely late. And also, um, 
I grew up with Lori McNeil, who's also a top tennis player. Lori and I both were like 10 and a half. We're only a month apart. And um, once, uh, so John had a tennis program here in Houston, Texas, where he taught kids how to play the game for free. Um, I actually, um, I go back to, I'll first tell this part. Um, I never forget um, had um, the Pudding Man at that time, which was, which was, um, um, God, the name just uh, not Bill God, Cosby. Bill Cosby, yes. I don't know his name. Just so Bill Cosby came out to do a tennis clinic, and out of a hundred kids, he picked me, and I started playing every day since then. And so, Lori, hang on a I second. Just, Bill Cosby came to the park. Came to McGregor Park, and he did a tennis clinic because he loved tennis so much. Bill Cosby and out loved of tennis. Kids, he, out of 100 kids, he picked me, uh, one of the kids to hit with. And I just started I started playing. And I, I, I was one of those kids that I could analyze things very well, very quickly. And so one thing I realized is I was fast. And that I was, I can keep the ball over. And as long as I kept it over and in the lines that I could win a point. When did you get good? Um, I would say about 14. 14, um, it clicked in. 14, it clicked in. I actually went to 14 nationals. And I had the opportunity to play a girl by the name of Andrea Yeager who was getting ready to turn pro and I played her in the finals of the 14 nationals and um, I lost four and five, I think. And I remember asking my coach was like, she's going pro. And he said, yeah. And I said, Oh, like Arthur Ashe. And you know, he's like, yeah. And so I said, well, if she can go pro, I can go pro. And so I just kind of took it from there. So you played Andrea Yeager tight and said, wait a second, here I go. Let's go. Let's go. Now, I had a, hold on a second. Now, did you grow up very poor? What was your life like when you were you were you like a middle um, class family? It's not you know. It sounds like it sounds like you um, had a nice childhood. I never went without food, but we were not rich. Um, my mom had seven kids. My dad. Um, I was the youngest by ten years old. My dad actually died when I was like uh, one years old. So I never really knew my dad. My dad was a postman. Um, and so I had an older brother who was had the opportunity to go um, to play uh, professional baseball. He, But he got hit in the eye. He was a catcher. He got hit in the eye twice um, when he was younger. And then when he was older, he had a habit of kind of pulling up his um, masking. And so he died at 21 and my dad died. Um, he died in six months, and then my dad died um, when I was one. So oh, come on. all that kind of, like, came on. So basically, my mom was a nurse's aide, and so my brothers and sisters basically helped my mother a lot. And so I was, and like I said, I never really went without. Sure. Now, but now when you start traveling to, where would you travel to play tournaments? Like, were you just putting beatdowns on players all across Texas. What was that like being a junior <laughs> in Texas? Well, actually I was very fortunate because like I said, by the time I was 14, I started really in Texas. I was kind of unbeatable. Um, 
a loss, you know, from one match to Lori because I forgot to call the, I forgot, I did, I was a little arrogant. Let me just be real. I didn't call the ball out and Lori ended up beating me, but I had a very great career. And then I also started to understand, like if I won the sportsmanship award, normally that would give me a little money to help me get to different tournaments. And then also it was a, our program was about, um, it's about 28, no, about 30 kids. And my mom and all the other parents would, they would sell fish dinners or they would sell, you know, chicken, barbecue chicken to help us get to different tournaments. Come on. <laughs> you say, come on, it's the truth. <laughs> and did you play the Orange Bowl? Did you play... Mm-hmm. The Easter Bowl, like what? What kind? Like, were you traveling all across Florida, California? Who was the players you would come up against? I'm horrible. My memory is absolutely horrible. But I did play the Orange Bowl. I played, you know, um, uh, Easter Bowl. All of those back then. Also, um, the ATA, which is the American Tennis Association, which was our Black Tennis Association. A lot of times, if you just and actually even the USTA they would have housing. So if you just, you qualified and, you know, they would set you up with housing and that's how, that's how I kind of traveled the world. It's totally different than, I mean, travel the U S is totally different than the way they have it now for so many reasons. But a lot of times I would just get to the tournament. (laughs) Now you were the number one junior in the world. Did you play like junior Wimbledon? And when was the first time you left the country? The first time I left the country was, and you'll get a kick out of this, because sometimes I think about this story. I absolutely am one of those people who do not like to fly. I just don't like flying. That's kind of my control thing. So the first time I left the country was to go to Japan. And I was getting, and I was going to take a flight to play the Japan, the Japan Open, which is called Jow Cup back then. So you had already turned pro. This is when you turned pro. No, no, no. This is is a junior tournament. Okay. And um, this is a junior tournament. So that was my first junior tournament. And so I was so nervous that they got (laughs) someone to call me from Pan Am. Do you remember Pan Am? Of course. And so the the pilot called and he tried to, you know, reassure me and talked about flying and and all that. So that was my first time going out of of the country. How was your result? I actually won it. And, uh, <laughs> of course, I ate, you did. <laughs> I, ate, I basically ate that whole tournament. I'll never forget. Um, Love sushi now, but didn't eat it back then. I ate scrambled eggs and and um, scrambled eggs and toast probably the whole tournament. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but so, and then from there, um, I was on the waiting list for the French Open uh, juniors, lost in the quarters. Then I was on the wait list, um, even though I was only the first one to get to the quarters of the French Open juniors out of the little group that we had. So I was on the wait list for Wimbledon, Junior Wimbledon, finally got into Junior Wimbledon, won that, and then came to my home country um, to play the U.S. Open juniors, and I still was on the wait list, and I won that. (laughs) That's an unbelievable junior career. Yeah, and I was on all the all those wait lists, even doing well. But it's okay, I I made it, and 
you know, John Wilkerson, one of the things he always talked taught us was let your racket do the work, let your racket do the talking. You know, early on, you said you went to college. Uh, I didn't even realize that. No, 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 no. I, I, I was, my mom Sorry. wanted me to go to college. Okay. Um, that's when Arthur Ashe came down and told my mom, she's the number one junior in the world. She's beating all these players that are going to college, you know, and so finally my mom listened to Arthur and I literally left, um, didn't go to my high school graduation, left, left there, left school. The next week I was playing the French Open and lost in the quarters. That's the best I ever did at the, at the, Come at on. the French Open. Yes. And then the couple of weeks later. So you got to the, you made the final eight club for the rest of your life. The first tournament you ever played. Yes. And that, <laughs> was, a, that was my first professional pro, pro tour. My agent came in and she threw this money on the bed. And she says a lot more of that if you play hard and work hard. The agent threw cash right down on the bed. Yep. <laughs> this is one of the greatest interviews we've ever done. Now, what, how old were you when you turned pro? 18? I turned pro. I was not 18 yet. I was 17, getting ready to, yeah, I was 17. I just turned 17. And now, yeah. did you have a ranking? Had you already built up a ranking? Um, My ranking was, back then, you were allowed to play, um, like, Avon Future tournaments. Yeah. And if you if you qualified for one of the Avon Future tournaments, then you, you I mean, if you, yeah, you qualified, you got a chance to play a couple of more. But if you won a couple of points, then that would put you into the main draw. And so I literally did it. And I, I think I came on the computer like at 27 or 28. Um, the French Open was my very first professional like tournament, like coming on and in the ranking. I came on like 27 or 28. You were right there, right from the beginning. Yeah. So now when did you start, you know, binging and purging, you know, when did you, when did you start having those issues? Actually, believe it or not, like 19, like right after my mom died, um, I literally started, I had a cousin that was a model in, uh, in Los Angeles. And, you know, by that time, body image, you start thinking about your skirt, you know, it's too tight, you know, you're trying to control your weight. And so she's like, oh, you know, why don't you binge and purge and whatever. And so that kind of started me into that. And then also finding out with a lot of therapy later on um, that, you know, just kind of feeling out of control, like, you know, number one junior in the world. Now I'm a professional, top professional. A lot of people are expecting me to be the next out there Gibson, you know, it, it was just, it was tough. And then I lost my mom, who was the only one that I felt that was there for me just because of me, not because now all of a sudden I was Zena Garrison, a tennis player. So you were like literally eating meals and just puking them up and then you go play. <laughs> God, God, Greg, that's the eating disorder. People going to get us for the way you just said that, but. Anyway. You're not supposed to say that? No, tell me. I don't even know. <laughs> that's what that is, right? Yeah, but it's binging and purging and and um but literally I would go on stages so it wasn't like I was doing it but I what the interesting part is I did it most of my career which is I still to this day don't know how I did that. But Man, I would I mean, go into different different phases of my life 
where sometimes I'm good, sometimes I was I was bad, you know. 1989, you won everything in sight. I mean, what was who were you in 1989? Um, just someone that was trying to be trying to be noticed in a sport that she had grown to love at the time. Um, and just wanted to improve. I, you know, that was my thing. It's just, I wanted to get better. And, um, I, I just had that drive to always want to get better for myself, not for other people, but just for myself. When, when was your best tennis? Was that, was it 89? Would you say? I would say 89, 90. I think I played some very good tennis and, and it's, it's weird. It's like, um, I just got into, I just really became comfortable with me, you know? Um, and just everything about me, it's like, I just became very comfortable. I stopped listening or reading what people were saying about me or, you know, I just, I didn't really even care anymore. I had a very, um, I met Barry Gordy, uh, Motown. Um, yep. For our listeners, Barry Gordy, the uh, the original, the founder of Motown. Yeah. A music mogul. Well, Barry loved tennis, and I remember him taking me to the side and basically saying, you know, hey, you want to be a champion? You need to be a champion on the court and off the court. And that just really stuck with me. And, you know, he even invested in me um, for one entire year to show me that, you know, I can get a PR person. You can be famous. That's not a big thing. But do you want to be a good or a great tennis player? And I just really took to heart what he said, you know, be a champion on the court and off the court, and you got to put in the work. Barry Gordy staked you. He, yeah, he did. Um, that was one of the best lessons that I learned. Your best moment on tour uh, has to be 90 Wimbledon. Would that be fair to say? Actually, believe it or not, it's probably the Olympics. I mean, Wimbledon was great, but the Olympics was, you know, I like to say, you know, getting off that plane at one o'clock in the morning and winning my gold medal with Pam Shriver and then the bronze just in singles. Um, and when I got back and and it's like all these people were in the airport, but more than anything, I could walk down the street. A wino would say, "Oh, Zena Garrison, congratulations on your gold!" <laughs> like it was different because with Wimbledon, it was personal, and you know, even if you did, if you didn't know, you had to know a little bit about tennis per se. <laughs> but for the Olympics, that was for your country. Olympic gold, nothing like an Olympic gold medal. Everybody knows what that is. Yeah, and it's and it's a, it's a fraternity, you know. Met some of my best friends. Um, you know, I'm very good friends with Carl Lewis, and I'm very, you know, one of my best friends is Jackie Joyner Kersey. So now, you know Al Joyner? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I loved Al Joyner. The triple jump. <laughs> That's my man. Now, I'm curious to know what kind of racism you encountered throughout your pro tennis career. Well, it's funny. Um, pro career, I I know what I, I think by that. Because I want to just say I, I looked at your, you know, I was getting ready for the interview. It seemed like you were very cool with all the white players. Like you, you partnered with a lot of different players. Martina looked out for you. Um, I didn't detect any like real static from just looking at your career, but 
I wanted to ask you because I just can't imagine what life could have been like to be, you know, a, a black pro tennis player in, you know, 1990. <laughs> no. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with my personality. I'm just kind of laid back and just kind of like, I, you know, I just kind of roll with the punches, but also I grew up in our program. We had a little bit of everything, you know, mm -hmm. we had a lot of black people, of course, but we also had some rich white kids that came over and that was John's thing. Like, you know, being a, on the tennis court, everybody should learn to, to be able to kind of, to relate to each other. So going, going on. So the racism, I would say as far as on the pro tour, I, of course, I had some incidents and some things that happened, but as far as the players were concerned, um, not per se. I had one kind of, you know, South African, I'm not going to say names, but um, that was always kind of like a, a nudge that kind of rubbed me wrong. But other than that, I pretty much got along. But of course, outside of there, I had, things that I had to deal with that people didn't know I had to deal with. I mean, classic example is sometimes, you know, people didn't even have, I was coached by Sherwood Stewart at one time um, who lived in Texas, grew up in Texas. And so I was explaining to him, like, you know, do you realize every time <laughs> I go into arena, you know, my white counterpart can walk in, and just don't show a badge, but I got to keep showing my badge. And I just came through the same place 20 times. And he's like, no, 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 no. And then we were at, we were actually in Australia one time and it happened to him. And he was like, now I see what you mean. I'm like, this is what I go through as well as some of my black counterpartners all the time. But these are things that other ones didn't, but you don't drill on it because you know, it's part of the world. <laughs> that ain't going to get you nowhere and, and at times, I'm sure. No. And everybody's different how they, I'm sure how everyone diff deals with that kind of thing uh, in different ways. You've said in an article that you, that Tumani Cariol did for the, for the Guardian, the English paper, the Guardian, that you were four in the world. You didn't have a clothing deal. That's racism. <laughs> No, that's racism and sexism, right? I mean, that's everything. I, I did not have one. And let's go even further. It's, I never forget. And I, I've looked for this article. I have not been able to find it. I think it was the New York Times. I'm not 100% sure. I'm still trying to remember. Um, but I lost my, I was with Pony. And I lost, I, when I came out, I was the number one junior in the world. I was with Pony for three years. And then they said in the paper that they wanted to go with someone more blonde and blue eyes. And I'll never forget my coach showing that to me. And I was like, wow, like somebody actually just said it. And it literally it took me five years before I got another contract. Come on. Nope. 19, I let go. 1990 Wimbledon, your first four rounds, you didn't drop a set. You pistol whipped everyone you went through. <laughs> then you then you played Monica Sellis. What was that like to play Monica Sellis in the quarterfinals? Um, it was I mean, by, by the way, what kind you were having incredible you have an incredible tournament. 
Yeah, and and it's funny because at that time it was the first time I actually had a sports therapist sitting in this in the stands. I had a trainer sitting in the stands. You know, I was married at the time. I had my two godparents there, so my support system, and I had you know Sherwood Stewart, who's someone I had won uh, a Wimbledon title with. So, and that you had won the mixed. You'd won the mixed. Okay, and that week before. I was playing absolutely horrible, wanted to quit tennis, you know, not, not, not. So basically, I remember going through all the, the therapy that I went through with my therapist, uh, sports therapist at the time. And when I came and there was one ball that I had missed the opportunity to get to the finals of the Australian Open, a couple of other finals the same ball just kept bothering me and I got that exact ball. And now I not, I hit that forehand down the line and I never looked back. Wait, explain that again, please. So there was one particular shot that I kept. So I lost to Mary Jo Fernandez to get to the finals of the Australian open. It was like a shot just right behind a forehand, right behind the service line and it was a short, easy ball. And I would always, I kept missing it. I played three or four more tournaments. The same thing kept happening. I got a sports therapist. I'd start doing visualization on that ball and everything. I got that same ball, match point down against Monica. I hit that ball down the line for a winner and I never looked back. So you were missing a short forehand in the middle of the court over and over. You had a mental block. Um, total mental block. <laughs> yep. And you worked through it. So you beat Monica 9-7 in the third. And then you played Steffi Graf. You know, when you get to the semis and you played Steffi, what, what was your mindset like at that time? Well, my mindset with Steffi was, you know, I definitely felt like I had an opportunity because, you know, my childhood um, friend, Lori McNeil, always played Steffi extremely well. Um, and especially, you know, I mean, she, she's, I think she still holds the record of beating a champion in the first round, uh, at Wimbledon. And so, you know, Lori kept going over and over and over what I needed to do to play Steffi. And, and so I was, hang on one second. Now, when I watched that match, you were so tight to the service line. You were playing so tight on second serves. It was incredible. Yeah, and a lot of that had to do with, you know, Sherwood and Lori was like, I got to keep the pressure on. I got to get the ball back over to Steffi as quick as I could possibly get it. You were smothering, smothering that second serve, like maximum disrespect to the second (laughs) serve. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the thing with Steffi is if you can let her know at that time that you weren't afraid of her, you had a chance, but most of the time she, she wouldn't, you know, clean your clock so quickly. You didn't have a chance to get in a match to feel that way. So you had to come out um, very strong from the beginning. Well, what did that feel like to have won that semi to get to the final? Do you have, do you have any interesting story you can share? It felt really, it felt really great up until <laughs> I was like, Oh Lord, I got to play Martina and I don't lost 30 something times and only beat her one time. So, you know, and so that, you have, I didn't realize that you have a very bad record against Martina. 
Oh God, it's like, I probably would have been one or two in the world if it wasn't for Martina. Like I literally played her so much. It was unbelievable. Lost to her. Lost her. Yep. And literally you, you, only. You, you couldn't beat Martina. It was just, Martina was just as strong. Uh, she was stronger than me. She was just as quick as me. She did everything a little bit better. Um, she was a lefty, could get that little extra slice. And so it was always, and, you know, Martina and I have even talked about this. It's like, you know, Martina really got up to play me. Like, you know, um, I had She didn't take you lightly. She didn't take me lightly. I had her on my podcast um, on myself. I do a podcast with Chandler Rubin and myself, Gangset Chat. And we had Martina on there. And we talked about that. And she's like, she knew that she's like, I, yeah, I had to play. I'm, I knew that I couldn't come out there and take you lightly. You would have been one or two in the world if it wasn't for Martina Navratilova to stop you in your tracks over and over. <laughs> Martina was like, whew. But. That's your you kryptonite. Know, that was your kryptonite. It, it, and you're, you're saying that, but it was, it was so bad that <laughs> I would come home and I would be in the airport and you would have, you know, porters or concierge at that time and it's like Zena hang in there you're gonna eventually get her so the year that I beat her at the U.S. Open I never forget first of all I came outside of the Plaza Hotel um where I was staying and there was this guy and he's like you know um he's like give me money give me money you know like a homeless person hold, sure. hold their coffee cup and so he looked up and he said Zena Garrison and he said it just like that he went from give me money, give me money to Zena Garrison. You finally beat Martina. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, back then, you, that must have meant that he was reading the newspaper because that's the only way you get information like that. So, but. Um, yeah, you can never, you, know, you can never miss, you can never judge a book by its cover. He probably was reading the paper, he knew exactly what was going on. But the thing I loved about Martina is, you know, and we played each other and go out there and you can still, you know, be somewhat of friends or, you know, be helpful. Because um, I wore Martina's clothes up until the finals. In the 1990 Wimbledon, Martina gave you clothes because you did not have a deal. I did not have a contract. I did not have a deal. And Martina uh, allowed me to wear her clothes. I mean, you know, let me wear her clothes up until, yep. Because she had a deal. She had a deal at that time with a clothing company. And so. She had her, well, she said she had her own clothes because she couldn't get a deal. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I want to just briefly cover post-tennis. You were a Fed Cup captain. And you filed a lawsuit that, uh, because you weren't getting paid appropriately. Uh, how did that resolve, and, and can you explain that? Well, actually, it wasn't that I wasn't getting paid appropriately. It was that um, I actually kept, I kept asking them for a two-year contract, and they would you know, oh, a one-year contract with contingency that you would get this player to play, whatever. First of all, anybody we know, you can't make a player play. Um, Venus played for me, you know. Um, Serena, you know, I think played once, but, you know, a couple of times pulled out. Um, you know, we weren't very strong. The Russians were strong at that time. I still did decent. Um, but we kept playing the Russians. And then the other part to it is, I think the straw that kind of broke the back is that um, there were some words that had been said to me that were kind of like, 
undercut, like, you know, basically racism. (laughs) Racist. Racist. Yeah. Yeah. So my thing was, you know, here we go again with, you know, here we go again, just basically with, you know, acting as if, you know, you don't have black players playing for you and that's not right. You know, treat them just like you treat everyone else. And so that's why I started the lawsuit. Yeah. And how did that resolve itself? It resolved itself in basically to me for two or more years, just really, um, we settled out of court, but didn't much kind of go anywhere because when I had the opportunity for people to back me up, um, they chose to, you know, and it's okay. They chose to kind of do their own career and act as if nothing's going on to kind of, instead of saying what was really happening, but it's fine. And so we've moved on from there. I'm good with the USTA. People stop asking me if I'm good with the USTA. I'm good with them. You know, progress has been made. Everybody's trying to improve. Your house got ruined in the hurricane. How did you come back from that? (laughs) I'm still coming back. But it was, you know what, what was um, interesting about that? So in Hurricane Harvey, I just moved back. Um, Luckily, I was thinking about buying the place. I was actually renting it. I was a month from talking to the owner of buying it. And when Hurricane Harvey hit, so I guess I wasn't supposed to have it. um, I remember like taking two things I took out of there. I took a Maya Angelou and a John Biggers um, piece of art that I have. Those are two well-known black it's uh, Maya Angelou, of course, you know, well-known poet. John Biggers is a well-known um, artist in the Black community. And um, I picked up that, and then I went back in the house and picked up my Olympic medals. And those are the two things that I took out the house because I actually had them on the floor. And because I was rearranging some things and something told me, and I went to my sister's house because it's, you know, older house and it's on a hill. And luckily I did because they didn't get flooded out. Anyway, the house got flooded. And so I remember calling Pam Schreiber um, and she was at the U.S. Open because she had asked me how I was doing. And then her and Chris Everett, you know, wanted to know how I was doing. And I told her those were the two things that I picked up. And I said, Pam, can you believe I actually went back in to get the medals? Because if not, they would have been totally ruined. I mean, that's just unbelievable. I mean, you've been through so much. Last question here. Did you like being a pro tennis player? Did you love being a pro tennis player? I love the competition and I love playing. Um, being an introvert and kind of a very creative person, um, I never, I liked the travel once I got there. I just never loved to actually, I just never loved flying. Like it, it just gets me so, like I'm I'm just so nervous half of the time, but once I get somewhere, I'm cool. But I, I've always loved the competition, but I did not, I was really weird, even though being the number one junior in the world, I knew I never wanted to be number one, which kind of sounds weird to people. I would have been okay with two or three um, because I didn't want all the added pressure or someone asking me for my time when I didn't want to be bothered. When you're number one in the world, and if you're an introvert, that's a lot of spotlight. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, I hope you're proud of your career. Four in the world ain't no joke. No, no, no. I've, I'm very blessed. And that was another thing. The pandemic actually got an opportunity for you to actually kind of reflect. And I'm really happy that um, during the pandemic, and they didn't have Wimbledon this year, they spotlighted a lot of things that happened within the 30 years of Wimbledon. And so um, uh, I was able to really kind of go back and rejoice to have some enjoyment in what was happening in my Wimbledon in 1990. And I'll never forget, I had a good friend who's an actress, Robin Givens, that loves tennis. Of course. Um, Mike Tyson's Robin, ex-wife. She married him for a minute. Yeah, Robin texts me and she's like, you're trending, you know, do you know? I was like, trending? I'm like, what? And it happened to be the whole Wimbledon thing. <laughs> Tremendous. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10-ball scramble. I say it, and you say what comes in your mind. It's not a deep dive, okay? We go quick, all ready? Mm-hmm. Favorite racket? Uh, uh, Jim, uh, Jack Kramer. Wood racket. The Wilson Jack Kramer. Mm-hmm. Your favorite racket? Yes. Size your person. grip? Oh, one-fourth, and I know I have very small hands. Four and a quarter? Yep. How'd you string your racket when you were winning all that tennis? Very loosely. Um, actually, sometimes, and believe it or not, would even be anywhere from 28 to 30 pounds. With Very natural loose. gut. Natural gut. 28 to 30 pounds. <clears throat> it was like a slingshot. <clears throat> really? Uh-huh. Do you, do, you still play, do you still play with it that loose? No. I don't even play anymore. I haven't hit any balls. <laughs> I mean, I hit, maybe recently I hit for like two minutes. That's it. You don't play anymore. No. Yes. I haven't played that much. Oh, maybe you get back out there. Did you lose all your trophies in the in the hur- <laughs> in the hurricane or you still have your trophies? Um, I've actually moved so much. I know there's trophies in storage. There's some in my brother's house, there's some in my sister's house. Um, uh, my sisters them get on me all the time because I'm kind of one of those people like I don't have to have accolades shown or whatever. I'm kind of weird. <laughs> Did you save your credentials? Um, yes, I do have those in a box. No plans to do anything with it. They're just sitting in a box. <laughs> yep. Everybody says the same thing. They got them in a box. No one knows what to do with them. Maybe a coffee table one day would be cute. 100%. Your greatest win. My greatest win... <clears throat> I would have to say U.S. Open and Mart- Martina because that was my that was my toughest one. Your worst loss? Um, I do not know the name of the person, but my grandmother died. I was in Argentina, and I had to. I knew the person was like 250 in the world, and um, I lost to the person, and I had to fly back, and knowing that my grandmother passed, that was my worst loss. That's terrible. Uh, your favorite tournament? Um, my favorite tournament. Actually, I was, I'm sorry. I got to say two. Sydney, Australia. I uh, used to love playing that tournament. And then also they had a tournament in Hilton Head, South Carolina. was absolutely my favorite. Why? It was the most laid back place. And I am a, a very creative kind of artsy person. And just loved like all the 
old shops and going in and seeing different things in the mom pop mom and pop kind of stores and hearing the stories behind the shops and stuff. Big entourage or lean and mean? What do you think of those big entourage everybody's rolling with now? I don't know how they can have with that many people around, but I told you I was an introvert. <laughs> you know, I understand why you need some of them, but sometimes, you know, I, yeah, I, I would say be lean and mean. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the queen of the court. If you could change something in tennis with just a swing of the racket without any real aggravation, what would it be? Wow, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Because I, 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 I like a lot of the old stuff, but I, I am liking some of the new stuff that they've added in to speed up the game. Um, and one of them definitely is the whole not having a lines person. But I love knowing some of the lines people. And I know that takes away a job too. So yeah, I would have to say one of the biggest things that I'm loving right now is taking away the, the lines person to speed up the game. Just did all electronic, no, no lines people. You've enjoyed that during the pandemic. Yeah. I haven't missed lines people either. I got to be honest with you. Well, listen, you know, I got to tell you, I've been trying, I, I've, been, I've been trying to get you on the show for a while now. I'm glad we finally had an opportunity to talk. As I said early, before we started, you know, I saw you play in Newport, Rhode Island when I was a kid and I saw you at the U S open. And I don't think you ever got enough credit for just how immense and intense of a career you had. So, um, like I said, I know you've been through a lot. Uh, I hope you are proud of your career and what you did. And I hope you, um, I don't know. I hope you kind of hit some balls. I think you got to get back out there, Zena. You sound like Billie Jean King. Like she'll text me something and she's like, have you started hitting yet? I'm like, I'm going to start hitting Billy one day. I'm going to tell you really, I'm just coming. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that even for us, you know, that aren't, that, you know, ever, you know, never played, the quality of tennis you played for sure but sometimes the relationship with tennis the ebbs and flows you know i don't know maybe it'd be, it'd be fun for you to get back out there a little bit yeah i i will and it, but if i'm around it and if i'm around the court then i do want to hit but for me to get up and go and schedule practice and all that I'm, i mean uh, that's tough for me <laughs> come on baby you gotta get out there you need a garrison <laughs> you got a lot left let's go Listen, you do whatever you want. This was a pleasure. I'm really, really happy to have had you on the show. Have a terrific rest of your week. Well, thanks. And thanks again for having me on the show. And you keep going. Keep doing good shows. Former world number four, Zena Garrison, you are released. Thanks. Huge thank you to Zena Garrison. And thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRANK30 at all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Once again, a red tape complete is the official towel of the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. They are A-R-E-T-E-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E.com. The towels are a tremendous gift. Use my code SHAP20 in all caps to receive a 20% discount. And do not forget the French Open towels are off the charts. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>